This is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy of the I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with Lee Rush. He's from Chicago, and he's going to be talking with me about the opioid addiction crisis and what we can do about it. Welcome to the call, Lee. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you share with us what your job is, a little bit about your history, because I think it's useful for our audience to have a sense of the wisdom that you're going to be speaking with us about, even though you may not want to say it's wisdom, but it is. You've been working with people with substance abuse issues and street people, people living in the streets for a long time. Tell us about yourself. Well, uh, I currently serve as the director of the Westside Heroin and Opioid Task Force. We kind of use those two words because we realized uh, a while ago that uh, if we talk about heroin, we're talking about all sorts of other adulterants, including fentanyl, et cetera. I've been in this role uh, three and a half years when our state representative asked the agency that uh, I helped co-found 37 years ago called Prevention Partnership. Uh, when he called upon us to become the uh, coordinating agency for a task force on the west side of Chicago that had been formed in 2016, but uh, was kind of lagging, it wasn't happening, and they, he wanted to make a change about who was convening or coordinating it. So uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Prevention Partnership, and uh, I was not working with them at the time, but uh, from my experience with them of working with uh, coalition building, they asked me to take uh, take the role. I, I serve with my partner uh, in crime or partner in service for 37 years, uh, Luther Sias, and the executive director of Prevention Partnership, uh, which is the coordinating agency. Um, he's been there for since our inception. So we have a bunch of septuagenarians running the program <laughs> and some, you know, some younger folks who are uh, doing a lot of the groundwork and work that we're doing. I've been in the field uh, roughly since... Uh, 1976, when I started working at Youth Outreach Services, called it was called Northwest Northwest Youth Outreach Services on the northwest side of Chicago, primarily doing street outreach for uh, around high schools there, working with uh, teenagers uh, around their issues with substances. And then it was uh, at that time there was a lot of angel dust or PCP going around at the time. And the whole idea was with outreach was that young people, and quite frankly, most people do not access buildings when they are having difficulties with, with things. And you really have to bring services out to people uh, to kind of get them um, comfortable with you before even any of that will happen. And, and a lot of what we were doing back at the time was basically counseling and listening, uh, informing, uh, commiserating uh, with young people. Uh, sometimes that led to 
uh, more formal counseling in the office. Sometimes it led to uh, family counseling. Um, but primarily it was working around those areas, making sure that young people didn't uh, kill themselves uh, un unintentionally through drug overdoses, through mm -hmm. mixing combinations of drugs, et cetera. Um, that's where I met one of your uh, uh, constituents or one of your team members, uh, Ava Sikowski. Uh, she was uh, there. And uh, at one point, our my role shifted a little bit, and she and I used to be on call to emergency rooms. We had the beepers before cell phones, yeah. before personal computers. <laughs> uh, so we would get calls from uh, about four hospitals who had uh, young people who were experiencing overdosing or coming out of some kind of bizarre behavior. And uh, at that time, the, the doctors there did not really have any understanding of street drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, they had even less understanding of how to work with adolescents who were being impacted by street drugs. And so we kind of came there first and foremost as somewhat as interpreters, as experts on kind of what was happening out on the streets, and also to begin to meet with the families to see if we could um, kind of move them to some crisis management to begin to see what was the underlying issue, uh, whether it was simply accidental. In some ways, with high school kids, there's not nothing's really accidental. Um, there's usually some kind of thing going on that leads to some behavior that could be harmful. And I so I worked there for about for four years, and then I kind of did for the next twenty some years. It kind of a leisurely stroll to some of the human services organizations that were providing various aspects of uh, responding to uh, substance use uh, issues. Back then it was, go ahead. So you've really evolved through the history of drugs, street drugs, psychedelics, all these different kinds of drugs as we've moved through culture shifts. Right. And, and as we talk about that, what are some of the biggest shifts that you've seen, especially, well, I mean, do a, do a couple of short uptakes, of course, but why is today's fentanyl problem and the overdose and the, you know, the homelessness problems and all these things, why is it so different? But do take us through the gradients of change if there are some markers in time. Sure. Well, first of all, we have to understand that people, there have been people experiencing the very same issues that are happening now all along. Yes. Um, they were hidden, much more hidden. Uh, the numbers weren't as high. Uh, there was not much attention given to them. And uh, so let's say there's pre-existing issues. There's always has been. And then to further complicate things or continue to complicate things, we had a war on drugs mentality, a just say no mentality, and, uh, and a real lack of understanding about the public health aspects of what was really happening with substance use and Depression and uh, all the other kind of uh, things that move people into the margins of our society if they're not treated or if not responded to. Um, and really, truly, those dynamics are still happening, even though we are uh, much more aware of the public health side of things with substance use. We still have a prevailing uh, war on drugs approach. Um, 
we revert back to when we get afraid of something we don't know how to understand to, to deal with. And it also still has the war on drugs approach still has cachet when you try to marginalize people or use use people and use situations to, you know, avoid talking about the real issues that we need to really come together on. Well, um, there's also, isn't there, when you talk about the war on drugs, that's more of, um, you know, that's almost like a political conversation, but there's also the increase in the use of prescription drugs across the platform. Is that the same conversation as the war on drugs in your voice, or is that a different movement? Well, I think, have- well, I think it's all part and parcel in some ways. I mean, again, we've always had overprescribing issues. Uh, mm-hmm. We had amphetamines back in the day when, uh, you know, Mother's Little Helper, that was kind of the concept there. We've always had uh, mis- misapplication of uh, pharmaceuticals from doctors or, you know, and uh, people who really, you know, uh, were, treating, were treating their own pain of having somebody coming in complaining. So they basically gave them something to, you know, get them out of the office in some ways. I know I'm being a little jaded about that, but... It's all part and parcel. There were there was a, you know, a, a thing about legal drugs that were prescribed by doctors that could be problematic as well. And there were street drugs that you know were connected to the you know the underworld or the black market and et cetera. And having a law enforcement approach without really looking at uh, the uh, public health issue and the and the mental health issues that were underlying it, we never took care of it. And it just right. continued to continued to progress. Um, I don't think we had anything quite like the scale of the overprescription of opioids um, that we did have, you know, in the last, 10, you know, 15, 20 years that really drove a lot of people who had hitherto not been a part of the black market into the black market into, into using street drugs. But that whole patina of the illegality of, of, of this, uh, of drug use, and the the stigma and not having uh, families and friends be able to talk openly with their with their loved ones um, really just did not help abate this this drive. So now that we have people who are are not being able to get the um, prescribed drugs, the opiates, you know, they turned to the black market. Uh, they went into communities where traditionally there was uh, what people know there was. Uh, you know, illicit drug sales, uh, open drug use, open open drug markets, um, you know, that were vilified at the time. And now th- those folks who came from more stable communities, if you will, or more, uh, uh, you know, Anglo communities, that, uh, white American communities, um, you started seeing a lot more of that spreading around in those communities. And, you know, quite frankly, that's when a, a whole lot of natural national attention came to to bear on the on the issue, and now we have, you know, much more. Well, an approach we are approaching more health, uh, public health model approaches, harm reduction approaches that uh, had heretofore not really been considered when we were just talking about uh, inner city uh, problems. Um, and I think that the field all along has has matured. Um, I think we're finding more and more understanding of the link between mental health issues and depression and, and drug use, and also much more about the whole um, biophysical um, issues about substance use. So we're using 
you know, much more um, well-informed approaches than we were before. But I think it's primarily that we just never, you know, the stigma of drug use just never allowed families, friends, and uh, community leadership to really dive into the issue deeply enough. It, it scared people. Um, you know, if you got too close to it, you were maybe enabling, you know, all these other things that uh, really ran counter to what we really needed to be able to do. So I'm really hearing some different layers that I didn't expect to hear when I first brought you on the call. I'm really glad um, to talk to somebody <laughs> who's got so many years in this because you're talking about the difference between the actual problem, which is emotional pain and suffering and, you know, very human subjects and the fear of not being able to go into buildings. You know, you've got to go out and, and talk to people and be human. You know, it's almost like the humanizing of our society. And then you're talking about the political ramifications as uh, businesses and regulations and drugs and treatments and pre, you know various different kinds of drugs. Then you're talking about the economic challenges that we're facing as drugs be, you know are legalized, but then you've got illicit drugs and you've got the complication of that. Then over time, we're talking about another layer, which is neuroscience and the physics of not just drugs, but how the brain works and all that. So we've got complicated issues on top of the, the traditional conversation, the war on drugs, or whether you've become a criminal or whether you're going to get punished. And once you become punished, then you end up in trauma. So the whole thing just sort of like continues to fester and grow and become more. So let's take a quick break. Okay. And I, I I dropped a bunch of thoughts on your mind. I want you vice to, versa. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's take a quick break. Allow the public to just think about these things that we're going to be talking about, and let's be, we'll be right back with Lee Rush. He's with the West Side Heroin and Opioid Ta Task Force out of Chicago, Illinois, here to talk to us about what's going on in our town. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back, Lee. Let's talk about the body of work that we just talked about. It was pretty mishmash, big tangled web of complications. What is it about that that informs your ability to help us look at today's problems, especially in the aftermath of COVID? We've had three years of people being uh, isolated, living with masks, dealing with vaccines, dealing with fear, dealing with homelessness, poverty, all these things. What's happening today that is either hopeful for the future or can inform us about what's actually going on in the streets that you're dealing with? Well, um, you know, I think, I think where we started with the, with the task force, um, a number one is we realized that we needed to get um, to save lives and keep people from dying. Uh, that's where we had to start. And it made it very simple that uh, it helped us keep it simple. Let's get as much Narcan as we can out on the street. Let's get it to the people who need it the most. 
that means that what we have to do is go to where the people are. Uh, and in Chicago, there's open drug markets. There's There are hot spots that we know just from experiential. We have people who are working for us that have lived experience, who have been out there before. They understand where things are happening. They cannot not see it when it's there. Uh, and from that, uh, and they realized that they had to get out there directly with the people and uh, give them whatever kind of training about how to recognize and respond to it and get Narcan in their hands. That conversation led to a lot of information about why people weren't going to get help, what their experience has been trying to go, go get help, and um, and began for us to start looking at our partners who were funded to do treatment and other supports find out how we could get them to come out with us and, and get, get focused with us on that and really understand what about their particular organizations and their approach were off-putting or were actually getting in the way of getting, getting help. And then also from their side of view, them telling us how, what techniques they use to connect with people uh, and help them successfully, uh, negotiate successfully. Um, I just went down a blind corner for myself. Can you can you redirect me to exactly? Because I, I think that's where it starts. Because if you don't, if you're not willing to do that and and create the rapport, um, you know, I guess in my head I was thinking of a quote I heard that somebody said the opposite of addiction is not um, uh, abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. And so first and foremost be able to connect with people and give them a spot and give them a listening ear and, and bring them back in from their chaotic use or at least get them to be, um, you know, treated in a way that helped restore their connection to, to someone, I think was very, very strong. So we, we really started with that place, that thing. And, you know, all that mishmash I talked about before, you can't really help anybody through that unless they know that you care and that you know that you care, and you know that th this person um, could have a chance of recovery, and that you believe that everybody can recover, and that there, you know, not every pathway to recovery is the same, and that we have to be very, very uh, understanding about really building a relationship and helping them with the recovery that they feel that they can take at that moment. Now, we have a, a a partner and actually one of the leaders in the whole harm reduction aspect of things, a group called Chicago Recovery Alliance that really grew out of the HIV AIDS uh, uh, challenge early on when they were, they were one of the first groups to do needle exchanges, et cetera, even though it was illegal at the time. But their motto is any positive change. So if somebody comes to them and they tell them, hey, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sharing needles, boom. That's that's a positive change. Or uh, I've, I'm testing my drugs before I use it. That's positive change. I'm not using alone or I'm using less than I used to. That's positive change and encouraging those steps because those are steps towards recovery and uh, and safety. OK, so you really made a distinction here for me about the the idea of morality, illegality, punishment, that's, you know, you're coming down on people, you're doing it wrong, we need to fix you, or we need to punish you. And you've really flipped the conversation over to talking about people are really becoming aware 
especially in the aftermath of COVID, when grief became a big deal, isolation became a big deal. So having a conversation about humanizing the problem is really, truly important. And that harks back to 30, 40 years ago when people were honestly going out and doing outreach, going to where people were instead of expecting them to come in, especially during the COVID crisis, a lot of the doors were closed. I mean, you had to have a phone or you had to have a means and you had to have, you had to know where to go and how to get it. And frankly, our emergency systems were overloaded and unable to deliver relative to what the humans on the outside needed. So there was a breach and you just stuck your finger on the source spot in the middle. We've got institutions yeah. here with behaviors and fears and drugs and rules and laws. And you've got humans over here with conflict and trauma and never the twain shall meet almost. So that's right. what we're facing today. Right. And yeah. And, and people who got disconnected from from treatment and from the, some of the supports and family, et cetera, et cetera. They're still trying to find their way back into that, you know? So if you were to talk about um, how to help people, like like just using the phrase Narcan, a lot of people don't even know what that is because, because okay, they don't. Right. Like a lot of the older generation, especially in some of the people who are in our philanthropic organizations or who are not affiliated with mental health or the the street situations, they don't know the difference between how fast fentanyl works. Like I had a father come to me the other day and he said, I'm dealing with deep trauma because I didn't realize how fast fentanyl works and how fast these drugs work and how dangerous it is. You know, I mean, he said, this guy didn't wasn't the one that said it, but I'll paraphrase, you know, back in the day, you know, it was just pot or it was just this. I mean, today this stuff moves quick. What do I do? How do I deal with this? How do I help my family deal with it? Right, right. Yeah, just for, for those who don't know, Narcan is uh, a brand name for naloxone. Uh, naloxone is a drug that when it's given, it coats the, it, it basically blocks the opiate receptors in the brain that doesn't allow the opioids to you to, to work. And somebody that's that gets, you know, is an overdose uh, from an opiate, uh, it'll reverse an overdose or at least the effects of, a, of an overdose in about a minute to minute and a half to two minutes. Wow. Uh, sometimes that person, if they don't come out, they need to get another dose, but it's in an injectable form and it's also in the nasal form. It's also in one of those kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's very expensive. I don't even like to talk about it because that's how, the, you know, the money is an issue for a lot of communities. So we don't, we, it's like a nasal injector, kind of like, I don't know, the EpiPen kind of thing or something. But um, um yeah, that that you know that's been around since 1976. That drug, wow. I knew about it. I knew about it back then. We didn't have many kids using heroin at the time, but I knew about it back then. But you know, because it's because it's a drug that that you give to people who are overdosing, and oftentimes it's uh, people who have a substance use disorder or opioid use disorder. It's somehow kind of it wasn't seen as something that we that need people needed to do. I don't. It just seemed that there's a certain illegality to a to a legal drug who, that worked. There's still a stigma about that, and wow. I think we have to under. Huh? 
So, so explain that to me. I don't understand the difference between the legal and the illegal. Is Narcan legal to have? On Nar Narcan is legal. In okay. Illinois, we have what we call a standing order. The chief medical officer of the, of the state has written that it's okay. So anybody can go in if they're on public, uh, you know, on a, on a Medicare program in Illinois, they can get Narcan for free at the pharmacy. Wow. If they, if they are, um, you know, on a, on a Blue Cross Blue Shield or any other kind of insurance plan, they have to pay money. There's a copay for it. Uh, it it's it's ridiculous and it's $130. It shouldn't. It should be basically free. In Illinois, we have a program now that was backed uh, by the governor that we any organization that kind of gets over a, a very low hurdle of uh, becoming a drug overdose prevention program in Illinois can get unlimited quantities of Narcan at no charge. Wow, so, that's that's really interesting information because as somebody who's not working necessarily in the streets with the drug problem, I don't know anything about it. And yet I hear it talked about. I hear it in the first responder conversations. I hear it with some of our people who are working um, directly with the homeless, trying to help people. That's useful information. Right. And, you know, the, the thing about Narcan, if it's somebody you come upon somebody and they're unresponsive, uh, and you give them Narcan, assuming that it's it's uh, an opioid. Uh, if they if if they're having a heart attack, it's not going to hurt them. I mean, uh -huh. obviously, it'd be nice nice to be responding to a heart attack. Wow! <laughs> but if they if they are uh, you know uh, in an alcoholic uh, stupor or whatever, it's not going to harm them. It's not going to in other words, it's not going to interact with any other drug or any other condition to cause any additional problems. Wow, that's useful to understand also. What you else know, could what else could you talk to our general public about that would help them to understand that this is a human problem, it's a human situation. We need to address this as family members, as parents, as as loved ones. I mean, what do we need to know about this? Well, first of all, I guess you need to know the signs and symptoms of an overdose first. That'd be useful. Talk to us. Well, I mean, the signs and symptoms are, you know, uh, lethargy or uh, you're not able to arouse them. You go over and try to rub on their sternum or uh, rub their upper lip, which will get attention of most people. Uh, and they don't respond. Uh, pinpoint pupils, uh, bluing of the lips and of the fingertips, et cetera. But primarily unable to arouse them. Uh, and uh, at that point, you... Uh, you know, you can take the injector and, and hold one na nasal, one, one nostril closed and, and shoot the, the nasal spray up into them. Uh, wait about a minute and a half. Well, at that time, right after you do that, call 911 or have somebody else, a friend call 911 and stay there with them until they come out. Uh, some people do rescue breathing. If they, they're still not breathing, they can do a little, sh not necessarily a full CPR, but a little uh puffs of breath in there to keep their keep lungs uh, air in their lungs. Uh, turn them on the side if you can so that they don't vomit and, you know, aspirate on their own vomit. But stay with them for sure. And when they come out, kind of let them know, hey, welcome back. Uh, this is what happened. Help them orient themselves a little bit because they were they were somewhere else and now they're back, you know. Wow. And, uh, you know, stay there until uh, help arrives from uh from the paramedics. Uh, I think the other thing to think about, at least what we do in Illinois, uh, you need to probably check. I didn't look for what happens in Washington, but we have a, a Good Samaritan law. 
mm-hmm. uh, that was recently expanded so that anybody even on parole uh, or probation or even have an outstanding warrant, what they do is just the person, the, the people who are responding come straight to the situation. They don't worry about all the other ancillary things that are going on. They're just there to get the person rescued. They're not there to do extra arresting of anybody being around them. Um, so that, because we found that people were not calling people, they were, you know, leaving them in the alley. They were, they're not attending to them because they were worried about their own freedom or their own culpability. So what you're saying is that people who have a record or people who were afraid of getting involved or people who were afraid of doing things, they wouldn't call even to get a rescue because they didn't want to get get arrested. That's right. that's really interesting because one of the things that I did a, a while back is I did a study of people who call in to get for an emergency help. And oftentimes I found that people who were calling 911 to get help for somebody in our particular community, a lot of them actually did get arrested or get, you know, they ended up getting the person who got in, who was dealing with the drug overdose or the person who was dealing with an emergency, they got them arrested. And then those people, so it created this cascade negative effect and compound trauma, frankly. And then it created mental, more mental illness problems. And it, it like, it's become like this festering problem. Let's talk about that. Let's take another quick break. I'll be right back with Lee Rush talking about opioids, addiction. How do we help the community? Thank you to our donors whose contributions help our clients directly. You can see the sponsors list and the names of donors and members who are publicly recognized on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. All contributions are appreciated. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, volunteer, donate monthly, or leave a legacy gift by clicking on the donate button. Welcome back, Lee. Talk to us about what could we do as a community? What do you see from your historical perspective, your real world experience and moving into the future? We clearly have a problem with fentanyl in the nation. We clearly have a problem with homelessness. We've got all kinds of problems up and down I-5 across the nation everywhere. What from your experience would you offer to us as a local community, whether it's Bellingham, Washington, which is where we're from, or any other small community, how can you help to see us solving the problem into the future? Sure. I would say, you know, I guess these are things that you that you can learn. I think that everybody who's interested in this needs to find out, <clears throat> needs to learn about the impact of stigma, what stigma is, how stigma is kind of embedded in our language, and in our kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction to things, or our, our initial reaction to things, how it's been really tempered by, uh, you know, a law enforcement approach, solely a law enforcement approach, uh, by social, by media, by stories about addiction, uh, all these things that kind of carry the mythos that keeps us from really getting involved and realizing this is something that we can tackle. Uh, and that uh, and removing all the noise that stigma can, uh, can create, remove it and just focus on our relationship with the people that we love, the people that we care for. So stigma, understanding stigma, even in the language, you know, 
let me just give you an example. Sometimes people in treatment, uh, they ask for a urinalysis, urine drop. Okay, so now, you know, in the language of the non, uh, I guess the non, the stigmatizing language is, oh, you came up dirty or you came up clean. Those are real strong words that have other meanings in people's head, even if you're not even talking about that in the context you think you're talking about. So, you know, instead of saying you came up dirty, presence of there were drugs in your system. Clear sure. and simple. That's what it was. Or clean, we didn't find any drugs in your system. Now, people who, who are in recovery groups, et cetera, they might talk in street language and talk about clean or dirty and all those kind of things. That's their prerogative. But as, as leaders in this and as understanding how words get in our way of, of being able to approach people that we care about, we have to understand that and see how those words perpetuate. Okay. Second piece is really understand um, the nature of addiction, how it, what we know now biomedically what happens, what we know socially, what we know in terms of the physical effects. Uh, you can learn about it because then you can understand the behavior and why these why the, why things perpetuate. I would say one of the major drivers of people who uh, have opioid use disorder is that they're just trying to not feel sick from the withdrawal symptoms. You know, they've created they they become addicted. Their body does not work functionally well. They hurt if they don't get get the drug. They're also um, we have to understand that people. Uh, there's kind of almost a natural human drive to feel a different, um, you know, even when you look at little children rolling down the hill to get dizzy, that's an altered state, you know, and that's something that we, 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 we searched. I mean, it's really something we want to feel and that, you know, the drive for euphoria is a, is something that we all kind of have at the different levels. Okay. So okay. people tend to want to, you know, so we need to understand the physical effects, why somebody would return to a drug, why somebody who's got an addiction would, would need to, would feel desperate and want to start doing, you know, do, doing something that that wasn't prescribed for them, et cetera, et cetera. So and that's I think interesting. We all... Hold on. Go back to this euphoria thing. I've never actually thought about the fact that euphoria i've thought about it as a means as addiction as a means to get away from emotional pain or suffering or misery i haven't thought about it as a i mean i've also thought about it as an as a means to distract me from other things that are going on in my life like to numb other things but i never thought about it as part of the euphoria of of exploring different states. I really never had thought about that. Are there more things? No, I think, that? I mean, I, I mean, I think that's a driver. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't get addicted that still use drugs to feel that way. Uh, they just, they're just not something that they, uh, they uh, return to over and over again. Either they didn't like the after effect of it, or they just didn't have place for it in their lives and whatever. But, you know, we do seek out I mean, that's why people go to plays. That's why they, when they go to, you know, uh, sporting events or whatever, they they like that euphoria of being a part of, of about, you know, I'm, I don't want to overstress that, but that we no. have to understand that and not be afraid of it and understand that that's could be a driver of that. Um, not everybody's doing it to escape, you know, uh, bad uh, psychic or physical pain, although that's a that's a huge piece and and continued use of an opioid can 
you know, in terms of with, uh, you know, need for, uh, you know, when tolerance develops and when withdrawal symptoms develop, all of a sudden now you're in a new realm of just trying to stay normal as opposed to feel euphoric, um, you know, and drugs do work a lot, like you said, kind of disconnecting somebody from the current stress that they're experiencing. But we have to understand that we have to, what I'm saying is we understand uh, why people take drugs and understand our own need for uh, feeling different, feeling better. I think it humanizes and understands we share a lot more with the people that we think we don't understand because they're using drugs. Um, so we it's just have to realize. Go ahead. I had my own prejudice around this. I just saw it. I mean, it's interesting because I I explored a little bit with pot when I was a kid. I mean, not a kid, but as a young college student. And I drank alcohol. And then when I got pregnant, I decided I didn't need to do any of this. So over the years of not being, of, of having a family, raising a family, listening to the news, learning about all these things, I developed my own judgments around people who do drugs, people who drink, people who do these things. I never saw that part of the reason why people start exploring and start seeking information, and then they get addicted, I never saw it as part of an exploration of different states. And yet that that explains, and, and what it did, what it just did is it withdrew my automatic prejudice and my automatic belief system. So that's why it's useful to understand that just because people are addicted or they're doing drugs doesn't mean that I have to see them as criminals or as bad or as mentally ill, which is oftentimes what a lot of people will talk about. Right, exactly. So I just, what I mean, I'm trying to just realize yeah. we're not that we're not that different. So um, that's that's two things. OK, so understand how to respond and, and, and uh, save a life, understand more about addiction, why it happens, the effects of certain drugs. And I think the other thing I want to think about when you're looking at your community, oftentimes uh, services are fragmented. And I'm not just even saying services within, but sometimes services within the same arena. In other words, treatment centers aren't talking to, um, you know, other, other, uh, other treatment centers or harm reduction or organizations that are primarily doing street work or doing needle exchange or whatever, aren't talking to emergency rooms or, or treatment programs. Uh, those programs, you know, those, those approaches are fragmented. So we, so an individual who maybe we work with on the street and we start getting, they, you know, they start seeing, hey, I'm ready, I'm ready for treatment. Um, and then when we move into the treatment piece, um, that transition just is not smooth. It's not a warm handoff. There's too much of a too much of a gap between where I right, what where I am right now and what the, this treatment center or these, this particular addiction program is asking of me. Um, it's too big. It's a bridge too far. So wow. you know, one one of the things we're trying to do is to bridge that and make a warm handoff. So we have a similar approach, at least at least in how we understand what's going on with this person. And it makes it much easier for this person to transition. The same way with, with you know, because many, many of the pe street people that we work with, when we, when that, you know, when we, if we re reverse their overdose, they don't want to go to an emergency room. Their experience in an emergency room is, is totally um, negative. 
they're not listened to. They're, uh, you know, maybe times because they've been over there a number of times, you know, they get treated roughly. Uh, they don't get their pain taken care of. Um, they're stigmatized. And so, you know, they don't even want to be a part of that. So the different parts of the system that we think we have to help people are fragmented. But the other thing is we often look at homelessness and addiction and uh, sex work and uh, mental health as different approaches when we realize we're all working oftentimes with the same client and that um, we have to understand that these folks need to access multiple systems or at least, or maybe those multiple systems need to be in one spot to be able to communicate with each other about what they're seeing and kind of have a much more holistic approach to working with this person. Um, so, so the other, so to be able to look, so I'm sorry, I'm over, so be able to look at your different providers and say, are we, are we coming together to really talk about these people that we're serving that we're all serving? So you're really, it's very interesting because I sat on the Incarceration Prevention Reduction Task Force as a, as a proxy person listening to what all these service providers were talking about. And I've listened to many nonprofits talking about it. And, and it's almost like they're talking about things from a clinical standpoint. It's like, you know, a wraparound services as if it's a service that you're providing. And what I'm hearing you saying is, is compassionate, connected, inter integrated services to help the humans who are trying to work through challenges that they're facing and being able to have a warm hand to say, here, let me help you instead of the focus on, I need to be sure that I'm providing the right services in the right order so that, uh, so that I'm not legally in trouble or so I'm doing my job right. It's like a, it's almost like a complete flip over from what I've often heard when I'm listening to service providers who are stuck in the patterns of, of either law enforcement or, you know, being afraid as opposed to going, wow, you know what, we really got a problem. We need to bridge the gap. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, a lot of it comes from funding. Sure. You know, people, you know, the funding, you know, there's deliverables to be made. You need to see X amount of people. You need to do all this. The funding can only go for this particular type of person. Uh, we don't pay. You know, we found that, you know, we don't. Some of the organizations, even though they did come out and join us on the street, they say, you know, we're not this isn't sustainable because we're not getting uh, Medicaid reimbursement or Medicare reimbursement or any kind of reimbursement for the time we have out here on the street. We have to see them in these hour-long group sessions or these particular modalities that we have. And so they're not, they're kind of constricted by the funding. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, I'm our task force was bit was been very fortunate that we were able to get general revenue funding from our state rep who put this together, LaShawn Ford that we were essentially able to kind of build each work plan every year around what we've discovered about what, what what's important to this coalition and how we need to work together. So we could tweak uh, and move move our, our services around or bring in an expert on a contract to help, help us with certain things because it's something that bubbled up from the community. Um, you know, just a little things like, okay, we have a housing program we want to get somebody in the housing, that person that we're trying to get in housing doesn't have a phone. Well, now right. they can't be a part of the waiting list. They're out of the game. 
So, you know, do we try to get everybody a phone? That might not be really good, but can we get, you know, work with the housing thing to say, hey, look, if we don't have phones, is there a way we can we can help this with by proxy, or is there another way? Because you're 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 setting a roadblock here that that's preventing people from using your services. So um, wow. you know, all that coming together. So I think you know, a community like yourselves need to kind of say, the leadership of your various social service agencies need to come together and say, um, and learn about the opioids, learn about the addiction and say, what's our piece in this puzzle here? Or what's our overall approach that's gonna be the best to work, you know, the best to work. Some people talk about, you know, there's harm reduction. Harm reduction is is essentially, it's two things. It's, it's like I mentioned before, it's helping people learn how to use their substances uh, less or more safely so they don't die, so they continue to be possibly get into recovery. But it's also a very person-centered approach where you really understand everybody's an individual and not everybody fits into cookie-cutter uh, recovery programs or recovery issues so that we have to always remember how we're connecting with this person. Uh, and um, so it isn't just a, a certain modality, it's an overall ethos and approach to people. And so, I, think wow. that's something, I think that's brought a lot of us together. So, wow, we only have another minute or two left on the call, but in short, I, I just heard you say person-centered approach, really working at harm reduction for the humans the, and humanizing our system, what else would you say to us? Because I'd like to have you back on the call at an at another episode, because I'd really like to talk about how do we help people who are in the in the system, we're as workers, people who are first responders, and the people who need help, which is oftentimes family members, not just the person who is addicted, to talk about that. But what would you like to say to close this conversation? Um, just what's the best thing you could recommend we do? Uh, well, make sure that we include the people who are suffering from their uh, uh, opioid or substance use disorder, include them in the conversation. Uh, you know, there's another slogan that comes out of that nothing about us without us. Yes. And, uh, you know, if we're going to spend millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I hope you get millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars out in your, in your community, but if we're going to spend money on this and say we're doing something, then we need to be able to make sure that what we're doing is something that's actually going to work for the people who are supposed to be the recipients of the service. Okay. And I would, I would suggest that, um, you know, family members who are feeling the push to realize they're not alone. I know you asked me about, you know, parent, parent or what kind of supports are out there. They are out there. Um, I, I sent you some, some information. I'll keep, keep standing for that. Um, you know, but still like groups, uh, you know, with uh, Al-Anon and other groups uh, that are support groups for people who have loved ones. Um, you know, there's, there's other ones besides that. That's not the only type of self-help group. Um, but realize that families realize they're not alone. This is something that happens. This is this is something that could even be predictable in some ways. Uh, and but um, you know, their their input and their concern is very very important. You know, we with our task force, a lot of what we've been doing comes from driven by people who have lost somebody. Um, yes. Right now, we're we're really trying to work with our public transportation system. Our 
our, our rapid transit system, our rail system to uh, train their their uh, staff who are on those trains or at least get Narcan on the train. Wow. Because um, we're that having a lot of people who die, you know, die while they're on the L. Um, so, and that was driven by a person who lost their 29 year old son to an overdose on the train that was not attended to. Okay. Wow. So How, there's, there's absolutely, not everybody who's a parent can be, wants to be a part of that. That's not everybody's style, but I think that there are ap- avenues about that. So, uh, Reduce the stigma. Listen to the people you're trying to serve. Don't think for them. Ask them. Uh, really explore uh, these harm reduction approaches and the public health approaches as opposed to the to the law enforcement approach. That's not going to solve anything. We need law enforcement to be our partners in saving lives. And uh, you know, in the best of situations, uh, just I, I know where you have time, probably a time constraint, but you know, I, I got a chance to visit the Overdose Prevention Center in New York City. Their relationship with the police now is that the police have palm cards that when they see somebody out there really struggling, say, man, you got to go over here. Awesome. Not only to be able to use safely, but also now they can be connected to a, a place where they have all sorts of uh, you know, uh, resources. The police in Chicago have an, al- have an alternative to incarceration piece. Well, basically it's street level. If somebody's found on the street and they have a low level of they don't have, they they have a what's before our threshold of the amount of drug on them they can go immediately and begin treatment by a provider that's actually working out of the police departments rather awesome. than even going through, rather than even going to treatment so take a look at our law enforcement causing keeping the split promoting the stigma promoting promoting the uh, disconnect or are they part of this? They understand where we're going. A good place to look is a little bit over the border uh, into Canada. And Canada treats addiction as a public health issue. They have overdose prevention centers. They have very enlightened police police people talk about it. Anyway, so I, awesome. I, I do go on. <laughs> we will be back to you. Thank you so much, Lee. Lee Joy, thank you. And thank you for your interest. And thank you for sending your what some of your people over to our meeting last night. It was great to have. have <laughs> Terrific. Thank you so okay. much, Lee. Okay. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.